0: save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an ac pro recharge kit today be a pro with ac pro hi cardinal fans i'm Ozzie smith smith corks one into right down the line it may go
1: and you're listening to the cardinals insider podcast go
0: crazy folks go
1: crazy here's your host brett mcmillan now gibson is ready from the belt
2: here's the pitch High, pop fly, short left field, block under the ball, Cardinals win it one to nothing. And Bob Gibson did it. A 10-inning shutout, his 12th shutout of the year, his 20th victory. He's being congratulated as well he might be.
3: Harry Carey on the call, the 20th win and 12th shutout of the season in 1968 for Bob Gibson. Of course, he wrapped things up with a 1.12 ERA that year. That highlight coming from September the 2nd of that season. And with it, we say welcome to the show. My name is Brett McMillan. I am super excited about today's podcast because we are taking you inside the 1968 reunion. I hope that you enjoyed watching it on TV. Maybe you were here at the ballpark. Anytime we can get together a pennant or World Series winning club it is always a lot of fun here at Bush, just the stories. I mean, to be a fly on the wall, which is kind of what I got to do all weekend, and it was just amazing. And I hope that you can enjoy some of the audio that we're going to bring you today, as well as our uh, Cardinals Insider TV piece, which if you haven't seen it yet, you can queue it up here. Uh, if it's not here by the time you listen, it should be shortly, cardinals.com slash video, just search 1968. Before we get to all of that, though, want to remind you that uh, the Cardinals host the Pirates on Saturday, June the 2nd. That day, 30,000 fans, 16 and older, are going to add an embroidered Cardinals jersey to their wardrobe, courtesy of Scott Credit Union. It's a one-of-a-kind item. Normally it's that iron-on or press-on thing. No, this is an embroidered jersey. You don't want to miss it. Get your tickets now at cardinals.com slash promotions. So, of course, 1968 is about Bob Gibson in a lot of ways. He had that historic 1.12 ERA. We had had uh, Bob in on Friday night. I don't know what that would have been. I guess the 18th of May. As part of the Complete Gamer campaign, we're honoring him all year. I know I've talked about that before. And he came in to meet some of the kids that had put together the, the Complete Gamer song and music video. Boy, that was an awesome moment. In fact, I'm going to bring you an interview that I did with Bob that night as well as some of the kids that were in the video that got to do probably a 45-minute to an hour-long meet-and-greet and and Q&A with Gibby. We're going to bring that to you as a separate podcast. So the next day, Saturday, all the 68 guys get together up in the Cardinal front office, and I talked to several of them at length as they were kind of just having a continental breakfast and chatting. Didn't want to take too much of Bob's time simply because he had talked with me the night before and been really generous with his time. But in order to set up everything for the TV show, I needed a bite from Bob Gibson. Because, again, 68, really about Bob. And the thing that I wanted to ask him about, the baseball topic, which I don't know that I've ever gotten to ask him about before in the three or four times I've had the privilege to interview him, was just the, the, the stress, I guess, the pressure of pitching that year. Because across baseball, the margins of victory were not that big. There was a lot of 2-1, 1-0 type games. So Gibby lost nine games that season, which is hard to believe for as well as he pitched with a 1.12. So my question to Bob was, what was that like mentally, the stress knowing that you had to be pretty near perfect and you were trying to push that ERA down to do something really historic? Here's what he said.
0: Well, actually, there was a there was a lot of pressure. And oddly enough, the pressure didn't come from facing the batters. Uh, like you said, the pressure came from knowing that we weren't going to score very many runs. And if you give up a run, there's a good possibility that you were going to lose a ball game. And, and uh, I think I lost like nine games that year. And I don't know how many one and nothing games and two-to-one. So that's where the pressure came from.
3: Bob is one of a kind. I had the privilege to chat with him more than I really ever have uh, had in the past over the 68 reunion weekend. And uh, boy, he's really a gentleman at his core. And uh, it was neat to see him interact with those kids on the 18th, like I mentioned. And we're going to bring that to you as a separate episode where he will tell you more about his platform and, and understanding playing in the 60s and the example that he could set and the way he believed he could be an instrument for change and to inspire others. It's really cool. We'll have that queued up in a couple of weeks. Some of the other guys that were at the reunion, Ed Spezio, Dick Schofield, uh, Kevin Maris, the son of the late Roger Maris, who was on a couple of those Cardinal teams, including 67, 68. Larry Jaster, Mel Nelson, Bobby Tolan. Of course, other guys that uh, weren't at the breakfast that morning because they had other commitments, or maybe there was uh, just kind of health-related things where they're trying to, to pick their spots. Tim McCarver. Holy and Javier, Mike Shannon, Lou Brock, as I mentioned, all of them tied up, broadcast stuff, uh, museum events across the street. Lou uh, sometimes has to kind of pick and choose. He's doing well physically, which we're, we're glad for, but uh, wasn't able to make it to the breakfast. So I'm just going to let you hear basically the, the unedited audio from a couple of these interviews. Some guys that you're going to know really well, some maybe that you didn't know so well before the weekend of the 68 reunion, but I hope you know them a little better after we let you talk to them. One guy that I really enjoyed talking with, and, and he admittedly told me you know, he was more of a bit player on that 68 club, but Ed Spezio. He just appeared in 29 games, 51 at-bats, but he was really well-spoken, had things that intrigued me to say about that 68 season, but I didn't begin by asking him about that. It was another topic that really I wanted to talk to him about first, and that is that he hit a home run as a Cardinal, so did his son, Scott Spezio. They are one of the only pairs ever... To hit a home run, father and son duo for the Redbirds. You'll remember that Scott was a big-time player on that 06 Cardinals team that won the World Series. Big time by that he came up in some clutch spots uh, late in the year, and specifically, I believe, the last weekend of the year had just a huge triple in a game that got the Cardinals closer to the playoffs. So a father-son duo that played for the Redbirds, that won World Series for the Redbirds. That's where I started with Ed Spezio. The first thing I want to start with isn't even 68 related necessarily, but you and uh, and your son, obviously two guys that have played for the Cardinals. I think there's only a couple of father-son duos in history. What was it like for you watching in 06 when he went on that run and, and won his own ring with this ball club?
4: Well, it was fantastic to, to watch that. And uh, I had seen it in 2002 with the Angels and then coming over here to the Cardinals and watching him get a shot by Tony. Tony uh, had him on kind of a short leash and uh, he came through and it really worked out and I talked to Tony about it after it was all over and he said without him there's no way we win or even get into the pennant which was really something because uh, Tony and I and uh, Scott went back a a long way when Tony was in was with the White Sox and he came down to do a kind of an old timers thing in the winter time and uh, we got to sit with Tony and, and talk to him, you know, <laughs> about baseball and that. And later on, you know, Scott was just a kid then, 10 years old or so, you know. And then to have him see him play for Tony and go on to win the world championship it
3: was really a thrill. What's more nervous for you, you know, watching him play or when you're out there in a, in a game that matters?
4: Watching him play. <laughs> It, It is. I don't know. I think any parent knows that. and It doesn't have to be in professional baseball. I mean, if you go to a high school game or you even go to a Little League game and you watch the parents and the kids, uh, it, it's you can't believe they become a nervous wreck over small things. But when it's something like the World Series, you're always kind of worried that something might go wrong and you're hoping for the best and even praying for the best, you know. And uh, it seemed like everything seemed to turn out pretty good for him.
3: What, were, uh, you know, what was that moment like the first time you saw him after he won that ring in 06? I imagine down underneath after, uh, after they'd come off the field, just as a father to a son, what was it like to share that moment?
4: Uh, it, it was kind of similar to the ones I had been through, but uh, just, just to, uh, to see him all going through that, during the uh, whole year that year, and then taking it all the way to the end, it was uh, it was unbelievable. It, you know, it's, it's 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 there's kind of an ecstasy type thing, and you're glad, glad it is over. You know, that, type, that where they had won it all because '68. We thought we had it all won. We were up three and three to one, and you got Gibson pitching a couple more games. There's no way you can lose. You know and sometimes in baseball that's the way it turns out.
3: Bob was obviously tremendous uh, that year what what stood out to you from the inside as you watched him go about it what do fans not know about Bob 68 that they should know that they couldn't from just watching on television?
4: Well it seemed like when he would come into the clubhouse before the game even started you know he seemed to be the loosest person in there you know he's trying to get everybody uh, Else that was in the starting lineup to feel free and easy about playing. And you did behind him because, I mean, he was going to take out 12 to 15, maybe even 16, by himself. So there's only a few people who are going to hit the ball anyway. you know. But uh, it, was, it was a pleasure to play behind him. And you, you went into the game feeling there's no way you're going to lose. I mean, that, that's a great feeling to start with. And that's what, uh, that's what he gave you as a player. You just felt there's no way that was going to beat you.
3: What was it like playing behind that rotation that year? Because, I mean, people talk about Bob, but... Ray threw a no-hitter. You've got Steve Carlton, who's maybe the greatest lefty of all time. I mean, just when you would get in there on defense, what was that like, no matter who was on the mound, knowing that, hey, I, I might not even see a lot of balls today?
4: <laughs> in, in my case, I didn't get to play a lot because we had such a great team. Every year, year I was here, I mean, in 64, we had the all-star infield, so, and I was just breaking in that year. But, uh, you know, with, the, with a staff like that, you really needed a staff like that in order to, uh, to win the National League pennant. and Because you were running into a lot of staffs that were unbelievable. I mean, you know, you talk about the Mets in L.A. and San Francisco and Cincinnati. Everybody had a staff of four that were unreal. And so that gave us a chance to win it all. And, and that's, that's the great thing about it. We, we had the staff that you go all the way with.
3: What did you learn from uh, from Roger Maris, a guy who had had a great career with the Yankees, and then comes over and he was big in '67, and I imagine it had an impact in '68.
4: Yeah, the, Roger was a great guy and a great family man. He was, and he was a hell of a baseball player. He, a, he ran the bases well. He did everything well. He was so he was quiet. You know, he really, but you knew you know he had the respect of everybody. And uh, I just remember him being his. A great person. I told his son that last night. I just—it was a pleasure being around him.
3: Another guy at the reunion that probably doesn't get uh, as much recognition as other former Cardinals is Dick Schofield. He had a couple different stretches with the team, three different stints, in fact, fifty-three to fifty-eight, again in sixty-eight, which is why he was at the reunion, and in seventy-one when he closed down his career. He won a World Series in Pittsburgh in nineteen sixty. And here's the interesting thing: again, kind of along the Spezio the Spezio uh, questions that I began with there and that storyline is that his son also named Dick Schofield played 14 major league seasons from 83 to 96 and then his grandson is Jason Worth you might remember him from the Washington Nationals really good player 15 MLB seasons 2017 being his last so that is three generations of guys that had really nice long MLB careers. We talked about 68 with Dick Schofield, but we began with that legacy, three generations in pro ball. Well, my first question actually doesn't have to do with 68, but you are part of uh, you know, a, a grandfather, a son, and a grandson that have all played big league baseball, and that has not happened many times in history. Um, what do you think it is about the family that baseball just kind of runs deep?
2: Well, I think it came from my dad. He played in the minor leagues for a long time, and- he taught me more or less how to play, and I taught my son and grandson. We've spent a lot of time together.
3: What's the, the maybe the thing that is so different about the way that Jason played the game compared to when you played it? Like, how have you seen the game change over those years?
2: He's got a lot more hair. <laughs> no, I mean, the game's changed a lot. I mean, um, of course, guys make more money. That's what people talk about a lot, but... Uh, The fields, I think, are better kept fields, and uh, the fans, TV's done a lot for, everybody knows everybody nowadays, where you had to go to a game to to see a player back then.
3: Were there more nerves when you were maybe playing, you know, like in a World Series, or when you were watching your son or your grandson play in a big game?
2: I watched my son play, it was terrible. That's, that's, I'm not a very good fan. I, I don't like anybody, I just, I, I kind of root for him, and it's much harder to be for somebody. When you're playing, you just, you're in the moment, I guess, and you don't think about stuff.
3: What stood out to you about that 68 team? and know you step in for, for that season here in St. Louis, and uh, what were kind of your thoughts as you were joining that team about the, the group that they had assembled?
2: Well, I knew they had a good team. And I would say it was probably the best team I ever played on. I mean, man for man, that uh, was an awful good team. So it was just, you know, you remember Gibby pitching like he did. I mean, that's, that hasn't happened too often or ever probably. So, but there was just, what I remember about that team, there was a lot of, I just say, nice guys on that team. We were friends and we everybody got along and we had a good time. Of course, when you win, it's, e- it's easier, of course, but I really think we had some good human beings.
3: Bob had that tremendous toughness and was such a competitor. How did that maybe spread to the rest of the team where he set a tone that uh, you guys were going out to win every single game? Yeah.
2: Well, there's no doubt that when he went to the mound, it belonged to him, And but we you take position by position you had a lot of solid players that you know that come to play every day and could do many many things so like I say I think it was the best team I ever was associated with.
3: It was just a tough year for hitters across baseball that season I mean really stingy pitching what was it like or what made that year maybe unique as far as just being difficult to even like buy a hit?
2: (laughs) Well, I'm I'm really not too sure why that particular year but there were some, some pretty good pitching staffs. So, I mean, you go to L.A., you got Koufax and Drysdale, and go up the coast. and We have Marichelle and Perry and Cincinnati had a bunch of good pitchers. I mean, there's, and the Mets had some good pitchers. So, you know, it's um, just, I don't know what the reason is. I really don't
3: know. That no hitter that Ray threw—I mean, that is such a just a swing of emotion from 24 hours before being no hit to no hitting them. What was that like? You know, coming back into the clubhouse after he had spun that game.
2: Well, it was pretty neat because I never seen it done before. Not many people have. So that was, uh, and you know, of course, when you went to the coast, they always said you know it's tough to win and. Someway you no-hitter back-to-back. That's, that's pretty special.
3: Last year, we had the 50-year anniversary of the 1967 World Champion Cardinals. That roster, virtually the same as 68. But last year, I did not get to meet and talk with Kevin Maris. He is the son of the late Roger Maris, of course, of New York Yankee fame, but came over and was a, a big deal for the Cardinals in 67 and 68, a guiding veteran presence for those ball clubs. Everybody that I talked to from both teams that played on them really would just extol Roger and his leadership abilities, and it was fun chatting with his son. Here's that conversation with Kevin Maris. People will always remember your dad as a New York Yankee, and rightfully so. But uh, he was a big impact here in the late '60s in St. Louis. What did he think of of being a Cardinal in those years? Oh, he's a, you know happy to be a Cardinal. You
0: know when he came here is Refreshing, You know, he got out of the big media, you know, circus that was at New York at the time. Uh, but to come here, the fans really know baseball here in St. Louis. And, you know, they love you, uh, good or bad sometimes. And, you know, Dad came in with coming from New York and had pretty good years up there. And uh, he contributed pretty good here. And the
3: fans took to Dad, I think, and he really appreciated that. What kind of stories would uh, would he tell you about, you know, Bob Gibson and Mike Shannon and all these personalities that are just so big within the annals of baseball as a kid growing up that had to have been amazing to hear those stories?
0: Oh, I always hear some of the stories Dad had, you know, the Bob Gibsons and, you know, being able to run around the clubhouse and seeing those guys and seeing how they do their workouts and stuff um, was a lot of fun for me as a kid growing up and, You know, dad would talk about some hunting trips that he'd go with Shannon and those type guys, and it is is a lot of fun to hear the the behind-the-scenes stuff, not just baseball.
3: I'm taking a little bit of a stab in the dark here, but was he maybe a Cardinal fan growing up or at least kind of in that KMOX footprint as as a young man? You know,
0: I'm not so sure because he was, you know, from Fargo, North Dakota, and, you know, I don't know how much TV they really had up there about at that time, and, but, uh, you know, he, he loved the Cardinals. You know, Midwest, I would say, probably. Yeah.
3: Um, you know, the, your dad's name, again, kind of like those other guys I mentioned, I mean, just larger than life to, to most baseball fans. What do you think people need to understand about your dad that maybe they wouldn't know from looking at his statistics or reading the stories or having watched him on television?
0: Well, you know, dad, dad played baseball because he loved the game of baseball and he played baseball to win baseball. You know, he didn't worry about his stats, or what they were at the end of the year or whatever, you know, he, he, was, he was there to win a game. And whether it took a bunt to win a game, he would do that. If it took a ground ball to second base, he would do that. And he never got caught up in hitting 300 or whatever. You know, he's more about production and, you know, winning championships. And he won seven out of the 10 in the 60s, so that's not too shabby.
3: I've heard that he had quite the business acumen. In fact, uh, that the the Bush family gave him a distributorship that was part of his contract. Is that true? And is that something he kind of enjoyed post baseball? Was uh, was kind of going down that path in life?
0: No, he wasn't given that. I mean, he you know when he came to the Cardinals, he was actually he was going to retire before he came to the Cardinals, and he didn't want to just leave the Cardinals empty-handed. So he sat down with you know uh, Mr. Bush and. Uh, Asked him if he could buy a beer distributorship you know, when he was done with playing. And he'd play two more years with the Cardinals if he was able to help him out with that. Because he and his brother were into the, you know, wanted to get a beer distributorship when they were younger, before they even came to the Cardinals. And uh, when they came to the Cardinals, it happened to be Anheuser-Busch products. And uh, there's a distributorship in Gainesville, and Ocala. At the time when he retired, that came available, and he allowed Dad to buy it. It wasn't given. He, he, he had to purchase it.
3: <laughs> it really was the year of the pitcher in 68. Bob Gibson steals all the headlines, but across the National League, across baseball, there were just countless a- exceptional pitching performances. As I mentioned toward the top, a lot of 2-1, a lot of one nothing type games, a lot of guys having to go nine or ten innings to earn a shutout in 68. There just wasn't a lot of offense, but it was an exciting year because the pitching was just so surgically good. One of the guys that was in the Cardinals rotation was Larry Jaster. The Cardinals posted a 2.39 ERA as far as the starting five go, a 2.49 as a club overall. Larry Jaster Played an important role. He was there most of the year. 9-13 and overall was the record and a 3.5 ERA, but still had some starts and, and got some wins that the Cardinals needed as they ran through and on their way to the National League pennant. Here's Larry Jaster talking about Bob Gibson, Ray Washburn's no-hitter, which we'll touch on in a little bit, and all other things, 68 on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. A tremendous year for pitching in 1968. Across the league as you watched guys on your team and other teams, what was it like to to just be a part of that pitching in that season?
5: Well, it was a lot of fun because we were trying to all keep up with uh, Bob Gibson, and he was the leader of our staff, and we were all trying to keep up with him, and, and everybody wanted to be like Bob, but nobody could be like Bob, but we tried to.
3: What, uh, what was remarkable from the inside, you know, watching him prepare every day and that toughness? We've seen video, people know his stats, but as a guy who lived it with him, what do you remember most about that 68 season from Bob?
5: Yeah, I was pretty young then. I was 24. And we, we just we watched everything he did. We watched his uh, work, work ethic between starts. We watched how he did his side work in between. We watched how he ran, you know, between his starts, how he worked out. And uh, he,
3: he would go after hitters and, and throw strikes what was his competitive nature like we hear you know he's the ultimate competitor but uh do you remember a story that just kind of like grabbed you where you went oh my goodness this guy really is a gamer
5: yeah i, I mean several times he, he wasn't afraid to pitch inside and uh, we we also tried to do that you know pitch inside like he did and one story i remember uh, he was facing Tony Perez, and he knocked him down, I think, with Cincinnati. And Tony ends up popping up and coming by the mound and saying something to Bob. And before we knew it, they were going at it, and the, the bench is And all I could see was Bob standing on the mound, and players were just flying off the mound one after another. So he was taking care of business also.
3: Ray threw that no hitter uh, the night after you guys had been no hit, too. What was that just kind of peak of emotion like going from being no hit one night to all of a sudden you guys are on the other side of the coin the following day? Yeah,
5: that's amazing, and I don't think I'll ever see anything like that again to see, you know, Perry throw a no hitter against us, and then the next day Ray throws a no hitter against them. So, yeah, we were, our bats were silent, uh, you know, the day before, but. they came came out of it, and uh, Ray pitched a great no-hitter the next
3: day. Mike Shannon led that team in in RBI, 79, which is kind of crazy to think about with today's numbers. But um, you know, we all know Mike in the radio booth now, many generations of Cardinal fans. But what was the thing that stood out to you about the way that uh, he conducted his business day to day?
5: Well, he, he made a great adjustment. You know, Roger came in and played right field, and Mike had a great arm and, and moved to third. I remember Mike. Uh, blocking balls and with that great arm just throwing people out. He he was not afraid of the ball on the third base corner, which is pretty uh, hot, like they call it the hot corner. A lot of balls came screaming down that way, but I remember he'd make the play normal, or if he couldn't make it, he'd take it off his chest and throw the guy out.
3: So he was amazing to make that adjustment, and his mentality was great. The video of Tiger Stadium, it just seems like the fans were right on top of you all the time. What was that atmosphere like there and then I mean here in St. Louis too it was, you know, the newer ballparks it was bigger but um, just the the fans in that series and, and going all those games like it did.
5: Yeah, they were right on you, the, the stadium was closer as far as the dugouts and the fans were, were on us more, you know, those older stadiums were like that so it was a... It was a whole different uh, atmosphere in Tiger Stadium. I grew up actually two hours north of there. I'd pitched there before but only in you know high school but uh, it was a very very much
3: different atmosphere. Kirk Flood maybe the most underrated center fielder in the history of the game at least I think so I mean he, he covered a lot of ground out there. What was it like knowing that you had a guy like that patrolling center field when you were on the mound?
5: Oh it was great we knew anything that was gonna be hit center field, if he could get to it, whether it was left, left center, right center, or center field. Uh, we knew he was going to get to it. He was just phenomenal. I remember seeing him going up on, on a batting cage in the old Pittsburgh Forbes Field Stadium, going, climbing up the batting cage in left center to, to catch a ball. So that, that was just amazing. I still remember that.
3: Uh, similarly, you know, Lou Brock, an amazing player. Uh, he had all those extra base hits that year. What was it like to watch him just off the bat? You know, I'm sure he, he knew he had two or three coming out of the box.
5: Yeah, it sure helps when you see your leadoff guys always getting on base. And most of the time, if, if you get on first, he'd steal second. And, and a lot of other times, he'd be hitting doubles and triples. So usually we had a lot of
3: one nothing leads real early in the game heard some people say they think 68 was actually a better team than 67 how do you hope that 68 is remembered by history I mean a tremendous team unfortunately and it didn't win the final game but uh, an equally great team to that 67 group.
5: yeah it was amazing it probably was a better team I think we won both years by about 10 games you know and and I, I think if they'd have left that team alone we might have actually won another pennant in 69 but there were some trades expansion came in But uh, that was a phenomenal team, and uh, I was glad I was a part of a couple of those great teams.
3: It had to have been tough to have been a reliever on that squad because the starter was just not handing the manager the ball in-game very often. But Mel Nelson was one of the guys lurking down in the Cardinal bullpen. He had a single save that year, but a 2.91 ERA, 14 games in relief. Did make four starts as well, but got the bulk of his work as a reliever. And that had to have been fascinating because he was sitting and watching like the fans for a good majority of the time when he wasn't getting in because the starters just wouldn't give up the baseball. So I enjoyed getting to talk to Mel from that perspective. You know, 68 is a a year where you guys won the pennant, an incredible accomplishment coming off of 67 where you'd won the World Series. What do you hope people remember most about that 1968 club?
6: Well, I would say, I I'm gl- remember that we were nationally champions and we had the hopes of being world's champions. In my mind, I thought we could have been and should have been and it didn't happen that way. There's a lot of water over the dam and out of the bridge and long gone now. But we had a great ball club and everybody had pretty good years and got along and everybody picked up everybody. And it was just a, a pleasure being on that team and going to the World Series.
3: What was it like with that rotation, especially Bob Gibson being down in the bullpen and just waiting to see if you were even going to get a chance to come in and mop off?
6: Well, we knew chances are we're not going to get a chance to come in. And if it was, it would be Horner or Willis or one of those guys, you know, like that. So unless things got out of hand, then maybe it was a chance for me,
3: you know, like that But it didn't get out of hand too much when Gibby was on the mound what made Bob Gibson so elite you know we we hear about the stuff we hear about the demeanor as a teammate what to you made him so special
6: well he was a competitor and everything and and he was in command when he got on the mound and and it, it took him a while to get like that he always had good stuff and, and uh, But the little command was a little off when he was younger and everything, because I played on the Omaha Ball Club with him. And then when he got to St. Louis and a little bit longer and everything, and he got command of his pitches with that slider, it was all over with. And he was in charge, and he didn't mess around with anybody. He was, he was the man out there.
3: Lou Brock, you got to watch him take a lot of at bats. What made him a, a special hitter and then obviously a very special base dealer?
6: Well, he could run, he could bunt, he could do everything, and he, just, uh, he was just one of the great players and everything on the ball club. And I think St. Louis was very lucky that they got him in a trade from
3: Chicago, you know, and he wound up being a Hall of Fame player. And we know him as a, a true gentleman, too. What was he like off the field when, when you would be with him? Well,
6: I don't know. I can't answer that because I wasn't around him that much, you know, when the games were over. But he was a fine, fine player and, and person and everything, and it was just a pleasure being on the ball club with him.
3: Bobby Tolan was just 22 years old in 1968. He was, I guess, 21 a year earlier when he had won the World Series with the Cardinals in 1967. He hit two thirty, five five home runs, swiped nine bases and was under the tutelage of two outfielders with a lot of speed and a lot of defensive flair, Lou Brock and Kurt Flood. I talked to Bobby a little bit about that and just touch on 68 as a whole. Here he is, Bobby Tolan, the Cardinals outfielder from 1968. Well, that was uh, you know, such a tremendous team you guys had in 67 and then again in 68. What do you hope people remember most about that particular group? in 68, which was a very similar roster to the year before.
1: Well, a sad note they you might remember is that we blew, <laughs> blew a 3-1 to game lead, but um, it was a fantastic year, our second year in a row going to the World Series. So, I mean, I cherished the moments, and then it was a sad day for me after the last game because I was
3: traded. What Was it like watching Bob pitch, and what made him different than any other person you ever saw pitch in your life?
1: Well, just his meanness. You know, he was very mean out there on the mound. He was menacing when you had to face him, and every now and then, you know, he didn't like guys to dig in the box. So all we knew is that we had to get one run, maybe two runs, for him to win a ball game, and we weren't going to suffer any long losing streaks.
3: What was he like off the field? Because even though he has that competitiveness and that toughness, I think he's kind of a teddy bear. A lot of people would agree when he when he you know is away from the field.
1: Well, I wouldn't actually say it was a teddy bear, but he had a sense of humor. I mean, uh, he played a few jokes on people, and uh, you know, people don't see that side of him because you know he's off the field. But on the field, all they saw was his competitiveness.
3: Was it like playing defense behind that rotation that year? I mean, Bob was exceptional, maybe the greatest season of all time, but the whole staff was was really pretty good.
1: Well, we know defensively we had a pretty good team out there too with Brock Flood and Maris in the outfield, and I would back those guys up and then also Cepeda at first base. So it was a solid defense, and we weren't going to make too many errors where we had
3: to give up a few runs and make him work any harder. I think that Kurt sometimes gets forgotten, uh, you know, in the annals of Cardinal history. Or maybe isn't remembered quite the way he should be for the exceptional defender that he was. What did you learn from Kurt Flood, not just in 68, but during your time with him?
1: Well, going to spring training as a 19, 20-year-old kid with those guys, uh, Brock, Flood, and Gibson, and they would all take me under their wings and show me the ropes. And Kurt, later on, you know, he would show me and talk to me about how to position yourself against certain hitters. And... With certain counts, you had to move around because hitters would try to do something else with a, a three-one count versus a one-two count. So you know, expect them to pull one time. Then the next time, you got to play them the opposite way. And um, I would go out to shallow center field during practice and work on getting jumps off the ball. Uh, see the ball that's being thrown. If it looks like it's inside. I start leaning to my right to get a good jump. Just the opposite way, going to the right side. So learning to play defense and position yourself behind Kurt, would mean a lot.
3: I know that Lou had uh, a lot that went into his kind of base stealing philosophy, the way that he would, I guess, measure off his steps or kind of mathematically almost picked it apart. Uh, What did he tell you about the way that he approached stealing a base?
1: Well, one of the things I think Lou may have coined the phrase 11 strides on a slide, and uh, based on speed, uh, in your 11th stride, you should be getting ready to slide. And one of the things that we did in spring training was we would take our cap off, and our cap had the little bitty eyelets, and we would peek through the eyelets at a pitcher to try to learn if he raises his right heel, that means he's coming to first base, the heel is flat, he's throwing to the plate. So we worked on things like that, and then it helped me to turn around couple years later to outsteal him and lead the league
3: you know I didn't play on that team I didn't unfortunately get to see the team play but I've heard some people say they almost think 68 was a better club than 67 both great clubs but do you agree with that do you think that maybe that 68 team had a, a step up even
1: I, if you look at it, I think we pretty much had the same team so I don't know how it could have been better uh, then the 67 team, um, I think we had the same outfield, same pretty much the same infield, same catch. We might have had a different pitcher or two, but you know they were both great teams.
3: To be back here, to see the fans, see their appreciation like you will later today, to get to tell baseball stories with your, your teammates, what does that mean to you?
1: It, it means a lot, and when the day is over with, it's going to be a sad day because this group of guys didn't play together again for you know, for the rest of their careers. We all went different ways. So it's a joyous moment, and then it's going to be a sad moment unless we see them somewhere on a golf tournament or an autograph session or something like that. But we've got to cherish the moment while we can.
3: I also got to speak with Ray Washburn during the 1968 reunion. Ray was the author of a no-hitter in September. Coincidentally enough, it came just one night after the Cardinals had been no-hit. Gaylord Perry no hit them the very next night. Ray Washburn comes back and no hits the Giants. I I spent time talking to Ray about his no hitter, and we're going to save that audio because we actually have an episode that will come out on the exact 50 year anniversary of that date. So be sure to check back in with us then. It was uh, fun to listen and talk to Ray. That will be fun later this season. And you know what else is fun? The kiddos are just about out of school. That means teachers are too. And we would like to begin the summer at the ballpark with you, teachers. Come on down and celebrate summer vacation. It's Teacher's Night Monday, June 11th. Purchase of a special theme ticket will allow you to receive a teacher's inspired Cardinal shirt. Get your tickets now at cardinals.com theme. Next week, Dan McLaughlin is the guest on the podcast. He was generous enough to give me about 45 minutes to an hour when we were at spring training this year. We just talked about his career, what he loves about the Cardinals. You won't want to miss it. You better find something you enjoy, and by God, man, I I've, I've found the greatest job I could ever ask for. It's It's been everything I thought it might be, and take that times a million. It's been even better. To make sure you don't miss it, check us out on iTunes or cardinals.com slash podcast. You can subscribe, rate, review there. We really do appreciate positive reviews. If you like to listen to the show, it just helps – increase the visibility of the program and that's a big deal for us it really is a blessing if you don't mind uh, giving us a positive review especially on the apple podcast app want to get in touch easy to do it just shoot me an email podcast with an s at cardinals.com i love hearing from you please don't be a stranger just go ahead and shoot me an email if there's something you'd like to comment about or maybe an idea you'd like to hear on the podcast i love getting those too and we really do try to work them in For Bob Gibson, Ed Spezio, Dick Schofield, Kevin Maris, Larry Jaster, Mel Nelson, and Bobby Tolan, my name's Brett McMillan. Hope that you've enjoyed this look back 50 years ago to 1968. We'll talk to you next week when we have Dan McLaughlin on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Until then, I'm Brett McMillan. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this.
6: It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.